That's why it's so important for me now working with Black women who throughout history, we are appreciated for what we contribute, but we're not fully seen, we're not fully honored, and wanting Black women to have experiences where we get to fully come into therapy, we get to be ourselves, and that our therapist is going to be competent in seeing what our needs are and also honoring our strengths and resiliency. Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. My mother, Minnie Jean, became a symbol of the civil rights movement at age 15 when she and eight other black students tried to desegregate Central High School as a violent mob of segregationists raged outside. As the civil rights movement grew, she met my father, a white man, and the two married during a time when interracial marriage was illegal. Being the daughter of civil rights activists who fled to Canada and raised me and my five siblings on a farm in the wilderness, well, it's complicated. Join me in inspiring guests for honest conversations about identity, race, and racism. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Greetings, and thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. As always, I'd be extremely grateful if you head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. That's always incredibly helpful and appreciated. I'd love if you could share the podcast with your family and friends. Go ahead and follow us on social media on all platforms at Roots of the Spirit. Visit our website at rootsofthespirit.com and there you can join our mailing list so we can welcome you into the Roots of the Spirit family and keep you abreast of everything that we have going on. The theme of this season, which is season two of the Roots of the Spirit podcast, is an wellness for all. In light of our important theme, it is an honor to introduce you to today's guest. Dr. Kimber Shelton is a licensed psychologist and owner of KLS Counseling and Consulting Services. She provides culturally competent counseling to individuals, couples, and groups. Dr. Shelton is an experienced presenter with multicultural and diversity expertise. As well as general wellness, she provides culturally competent and diversity-focused training and workshops to businesses, organizations, and mental health professionals. Dr. Shelton is the co-chair of the Texas Psychological Association Diversity Division, member of the American Psychological Association APA Minority Fellowship Fellow, and served on the APA Committee on Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity. She has over 20 publications, including co-authoring the textbook, The College and University Counseling Manual. She's also part of an expert team of Black women clinicians, researchers, and medical professionals who wrote A Handbook on Counseling African American Women, Psychological Symptoms, Treatments, and Case Studies, which addresses current social political events as well as historical trauma as it prepares readers to meet the needs of the Black women they serve. Dr. Shelton's powerful work, her many, many insights and deep wisdom, as well as the handbook that I just mentioned, are at the heart of today's conversation. Without further ado, it's an honor to introduce you to Dr. Kimber Shelton. Dr. Kimber Shelton, thank you so much for joining us on the Roots of the Spirit podcast. It's an honor to have you here today. And thank you. I really appreciate being here and having the opportunity to talk about Black women and mental health. Appreciate that. I love the fact that you have done a remarkable, tremendous amount of work on bringing the conversation of mental health and wellness to this 
kind of conversation around racism, discrimination, and disparities in health and access to health. I really like to understand journeys in looking mm -hmm. back and where we come from and kind of what brings us to the work that we do. I understand you're from upstate New York. Yes, Buffalo. Uh-huh. I'm from Canada, so okay. kind of close by. But I would love to hear about um, your upbringing and what inspired you to become interested in the field of psychology in the first place. Okay, that's a, how much time do we have to, have to <laughs> answer that question? Uh, so, yes, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, Western New York area, but my family is originally from Beckley, West Virginia, and um, both um, of my parents, they literally grew up within walking distance of each other. I could walk between my grandmother's homes when I was young. So my life in upstate New York versus my family's life in Beckley, West Virginia was very different. I didn't really understand those differences in terms of language like racism and oppression and um, gender racism. Wasn't thinking about that way, but as I grew older, and I would spend the summers with my um, grandmother, primarily my maternal grandmother. We would go out and my grandmother was a poor woman. She had an eighth grade education. The way that she was treated was different from the way that I was treated in other parts of my life. And I saw those differences, even though I didn't understand those differences. I knew that there was something wrong here. And at 12, 13 years old, find myself speaking up for my grandmother at the grocery store or at the doctor's office or this person who made a comment in the street because it was just different from my experiences in a more middle-class area. Um, my parents having more education was just very different, but still didn't understand what that was. So I think just as I continued with my journey and having experiences along the way that still didn't have a language or a um, term for what I was experiencing, I was experiencing it viscerally and emotionally. And then as I continued in my education and my own racial identity journey, definitely going from that place of colorblindness and not wanting to be seen as a Black person because I had heard things like the way that I talk. Um, you sound like you're white. So intelligent being prescribed to whiteness. And then later on in my journey and where I am now, just very much connected and wanting to be in what feels safer right now in a more culturally diverse and Black community, just my own racial journey along the way. And through that process, having met supervisors and mentors and educators who just encouraged me to continue to explore, to continue to push, to continue to utilize my voice for other people. And through that mentorship and through that guidance, being able to really develop that language and understanding of what's going on and feeling privileged to have the opportunity to continue my education in ways that other people have not, other people in my family have not been able to. And then go back to how my grandmother was treated. And my grandmother, she didn't have access to mental health care. And if she did, I don't know that she would have utilized it. But if she did go into therapy, wanting whoever that person was to see my grandmother to honor her, to appreciate her, to invite her to bring her full self into therapy. That's why it's so important for me now working with Black women who... Throughout history, we are appreciated for what we contribute, but we're not fully seen, we're not fully honored, we're not fully appreciated. And wanting Black women to have experiences where we get to fully come into therapy, we get to be ourselves, 
and that our therapist is going to be competent in seeing what our needs are and also honoring our strengths and resiliency. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm thinking about kind of putting myself in your shoes and what you have shared about your experience. And one of the pillars of the Roots of the Spirit podcast being representation and examining representation and lack thereof. So with your ambition and excitement around um, educational pursuits or the different areas you wanted to study and go into, as a young person, can you talk about representation or lack thereof and how that impacted you? Yeah, lack thereof. <laughs> so granted, I did go to a small high school that was K through 12, so I like knew everyone the entire time. But in the entire uh, education, I had one Black teacher. There was one Black teacher in the school. When I went to my master's program, there were zero Black professors in my master's program. And then in my um, PhD program, there was one Black woman um, in the PhD program. And then it was a combined master's program. There was one Black woman in that program. So um, another area of this work that's really important for me is allyhood and allyship that um, allies, they're supporting us from behind. We don't need them to lead us, but we do need that support if change is going to happen. Before a lot of the support and encouragement that I had, it came from allies because there weren't Black um, professionals around to help me or to move me in that way. The work of our white allies and men is very important in us being able to get to where we are. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Season two of the Roots of the Spirit podcast is brought to you by the Roots of the Spirit Healing and Joy Retreat for Black, Indigenous, and Women of Color, June 23rd through 26th in the majestic Catskill Mountains. With our birthright to wellness and healing in mind, we've created a safe space for us to deepen our connection to the earth and our ancestors, embrace radical self-love and compassion, reconnect with our inner wisdom and power, rest, recharge, and experience joy and sacred connections with other powerful Black, Indigenous, and women of color. For more information, check out rootsofthespirit.com. But then in my um, internship program, or I had to do a one-year internship, and finally I was exposed to multiple Black women psychologists, which it was an amazing experience, and I had never felt that way before. Later did a study on Black women um, therapy trainees working with Black women supervisors. And I, we would ask the participants the questions of, how do you define strong supervision? And there was the same story of, um, I feel listened to, I feel heard, I'm getting professional development. What's your experience like working with Black women supervisors? Emotionally, just complete change. There's something that is different when you're working with someone who has a shared background, who has a shared understanding, who has shared experiences with you. The nature of those conversations are different. Being able to feel fully present and encouraged, it was just different. So I very much value the supervision and guidance that I got from white allies, but just working with Black women, just qualitatively, it was a different experience for me. And so then how important that journey is that we have more representation overall in our field where people can feel safe to, number one, come to see a therapist, and two, feel like that they'll be understood or that they can connect, be connected with. Wonderful. Thank you. 
as you know, we've been discussing, you've been doing some remarkable work in the field of psychology, which I'm really excited to dive into. And you proclaim that you love your job, which I think is amazing. So among your many incredible works, you just released a resource for mental health professionals called A Handbook on Counseling African-American Women, Psychological Symptoms, Treatments, and Case Studies. I would love to hear about your journey to this project and dive into some of the elements that are really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the idea for this book came, I would say probably around 2015 or so, that myself and the two other co-editors, Dr. Michelle Lynn and Dr. Mahalat and Dali, at different points, we all went to University of Georgia counseling psychology program, but not necessarily fully intersecting. And we end up doing internships and then ended up working together later. Um, so our paths just kept coming back together. And um, Dr. Lynn, when at one point in this journey, she was both my supervisor and she also supervised Dr. Indali as well. And in that supervision with her, just being invited to be fully present, to be fully seen, um, to be fully vulnerable, that was something that I wanted to make sure that I held on to and that the relationship remained important to me. And working together with Dr. Indali, there was experiences of systemic racism and microaggressions that we were experiencing on a regular basis as Black women. And it was so nice to have someone who would speak up and not have to be that only person to speak up. So to share that weight, to share that burden. So our past then kind of went a little bit different, but stayed connected. And through that, having conversations about how important it would be for us to, based on the work that we're doing, that we want there to be more cultural competency around the work that Black women are getting. Um, I think this book at any point would have been timely, but it's become even more or increasingly timely with things that are happening social politically. So it was actually a surprise when I was reaching out to find a publisher. We're just getting rejected and rejected. And we're like, this is great stuff. Why are these people <laughs> rejecting us? This is wonderful what we have um, happening here. So it's actually a couple of years before we finally were able to connect with a publisher who wanted to publish a book. And through a series on racial and identity development through the publisher um, Prager, which was led by the now late Dr. Jean, um, who died during the COVID pandemic, but she was a leader in women leadership. So again, like she saw this and she knew that this was important, that this wasn't going to be a helpful resource for us, was able to get then a publisher. And as we were thinking about who we want to contribute for to this book, there were certain names that we had that we really need or we would love to have this person be in the book and then doing an open call. The um, proposals that we received, they were just excellent. Like Again, like... Yes, people want this information. People want to talk about this information. There's such a need for this. So it was hard choosing who were the others were going to be, but that was the that's a good type of hard. And then through this process, as we are editing and writing chapters, as our authors are writing, Black Lives Matter is happening. We're seeing Black bodies being victimized and murdered and being filmed. We're seeing Black people literally living their lives and being harassed by other people. So the authors who primarily identify as Black women are 
psychologists, therapists, social workers, um, nurse practitioners doing this work, but then also this is their lived realities. This is their experience. So just to acknowledge that as they are writing about the experiences of Black women, they're also Black women themselves. Um, So there's that emotional, which therapists, especially uh, therapists of color, face of taking care of others, but then this vicarious trauma that we can also experience because we're living those same realities and can be triggered in those same ways. So came together, made this excellent process. And I think too, it just speaks of the collective healing of Black women, that there were some of the authors who are professors, some who are primarily practitioners. We see different writing styles, but still being able to all come together and create a document, a book that is accessible, is practical, um, it's easy to understand. But that was even a process. Having written a book before on um, college counseling, the publisher said, hey, what do you think about this um, cover? Nope, here's some edits or changes. This, there was no asking us how we felt about it. They had just created a cover that was based on pathologizing Black women. As a Black woman, she was laying down in distress and the therapist just hovering over her, which is not even what we do in therapy. People aren't laying down and doing that. It's like, did you even read the book? Because this is not capturing what the message is. The message is empowering Black women, having Black women having access to care, Black women getting into therapy so that they can live their lives and they can thrive. So we even had to advocate around that of getting a book cover that was representative of the content in the book and stepping away again from this idea of pathologizing Black women in our experiences. Well, what a testimony in the work is more work. And there's so many layers to everything you just mentioned. I mean, I'm, I would love to hear your thoughts about, you know, what, how do you care for yourself in the midst of, as you described, you know, creating this work together while simultaneously uh, mm-hmm. experiencing the trauma of real life racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, fortunately having resources, but then also being able just to Uh, step away and step into my community that while working on this book and through this process just the everyday sociopolitical things and reality that were happening were certainly there and I've I've spoken about this at other times but when um, Ahmaud Aubrey was murdered when he was running minding his own business going for a run and three white men chased him down and murdered him it just struck me in a way that these other murders and um, victimizations and accidental shootings or intentional shootings didn't hit me the same way. That just hit me. Then we know vicarious trauma is an accumulation of these things. And it just got to the point was this was the one that had the most significant impact on me. And it was also very relatable to me living in a predominantly white neighborhood where my spouse runs regularly. And I just thought that could be him. Someone could hurt him in that way. Sometimes he runs with our children. Someone could harm my family in that way. And so just a visceral um, vicarious trauma. My heart was racing. I couldn't sleep. I could not focus. I had to take days off of work and seeing clients. I did not feel safe in white spaces. Um, All those trauma symptoms, hyperarousal, hypoarousal. So fortunately, I knew I was like, oh, this is vicarious trauma. I know what's happening right now. It's not that my I'm feeling crazy or what's going on with my body. No, my body is responding to this um, trauma that 
I am uh, witnessing. So it was helpful for me in just being able to understand with it and to normalize that process. And then fortunately, unfortunately, that I know so many Black people who have that shared experience. So being able to connect with them is really important. And then another piece of taking care of myself is that decolonizing process and also that act of radical healing. So the decolonizing process, I think about the Oscars and Will Smith going up and smacking Chris Rock. It's like, oh, we're never going to be invited back. Or, oh, God, this is so terrible. They're all going to think that we are aggressive. And I said, no, no, that moment is not representative of me is not representative of all Black people. Decolonize, I'm not going to own that. I'm not going to shape or reshift my life based on that experience. So those sort of decolonizing things and that radical healing is being able to hold these multiple realities of there's racism, sexism, heterosexism, oppression in this world, and I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to let that white supremacy stop me from going out for a walk with my children. So navigating both of those worlds, but that's a process. Like I said, there were sleepless nights and um, I don't still fully feel comfortable when I'm in white spaces, but um, working to better integrate into those spaces and connect with those white allies. Um, but yeah, just owning where I am and doing what feels good for me mentally and physically. I'm loving everything about this conversation, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Production and marketing assistance for this podcast is provided by Power of Pod. It's one thing to start a podcast, but what about a podcast with a proven strategy for success? If you're looking for expert advice and guidance, a step-by-step action guide, and someone to keep your podcast on track, Power of Pod can help. Power of Pod helps ambitious podcasters create the podcasts they've dreamed of. More information about custom podcast launch packages at powerofpod.com. I would like to ask you, um, in terms of folks who don't necessarily have the language, have the access, et cetera, it's like some tips and tools, which I know are embedded in the resource, the book that you have created. So can you talk, talk to me about the tangible elements of the book and um, what you know, who the book is intended for and what you hope the outcome will be from anyone who dives Mm -hmm. into your amazing work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, fortunately, we know that there's more Black women going to therapy and likely more Black women will continue to go to therapy. That we see changes in cultural stigma associated with therapy. There more predominantly was this idea, like therapy that's for white people. And now we really know therapy is for people. Everyone needs to take care of themselves We take care of our physical health, taking care of our emotional health. So we see these um, steps away from that cultural stigma while also realizing that cultural stigma is founded in reality because the mental health field and the health field have victimized and pathologized Black people. Um, But we see more women, Black women, going into therapy. There's greater access to care, but still that care can be limited. And that there's an increasing focus on getting that cultural competent care. This resource was really important because we recognize more Black women are going to therapy, wanting them to have that culturally competent care. We don't have culturally competent care. We are more likely to um, prematurely terminate, so leave therapy before our goals have been achieved. We may delay entrance into therapy, that one of the best predictors of future therapy is your past therapy experience. So if you had a good therapy experience, 
I would go back. If you had a terrible experience, you might not go back or you might delay that, which means then you're dealing with those stressors or those mental health concerns longer, which means that they're probably getting more severe and becoming more chronic for you. And um, that when we have culturally incompetent care, that our Black women clients might internalize their lack of growth as something within them. So it's that internalized oppression versus, no, you don't have a good therapist. Um, and there's, uh, even though we try to make it egalitarian, it's still a hierarchical relationship. The clients are coming to see me. They want my expertise. So even though we try to make it equal, there's that hierarchy where the client might not be able to say, mm, this is probably the therapist, is not me. So then we internalize that. And not wanting to put any other weight on Black women. So for therapists to be able to do their job and working competently with Black people, Black women specifically. And so... Related to that, this book is written for all mental health professionals. It's not just written for Black women clinicians. It's written for clinicians of every ethnicity, every gender. Because in terms of psychologists, there's about, in the U.S., about 4,500 Black active psychologists compared to 80,000 white active psychologists. So more than likely, when Black women are going into treatment, they're going to be working with a white person or they may be working with a man. So this book is not just written for Black um, women therapists. It's about Black women, but it's for every therapist who is working with a Black woman, who may work with a Black woman, who has interest in working with a Black woman, who is supervising or teaching a Black woman so that we can have that um, culturally competent care. And then it was also important for this book to be primarily written by Black women who, again, this is their lived experiences and this is their professional identity, but then many of these Black women have been in therapy themselves. So they can speak as professional, they can speak from their personal identity, and they can speak from their own experiences as a client too. That's very much empowerment-based and has case studies for people to really connect with that is written for any mental health health professional out there who is going to treat or uh, is treating Black women. That's amazing. I love that because of the stark disparity in representation. I mean, between now and when the number of Black, Indigenous, people of color therapists grow to somewhat balance out, there has to be some type of interrupting of the lack of cultural competencies or cultural care. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, you're doing this work. What is the narrative kind of on a, a systemic level in terms of trying to acknowledge the fact that systemic racism is at play and gives us what we're looking at right now? I'm really thinking about, you know, allies and white psychologists, therapists, counselors, etc. What, you know, in addition to your amazing work is out there where they can say, okay, how do I know if I'm delivering culturally competent work? And what is the barometer? And if I do see that I have a lack of understanding, knowledge, inadequacies in that area, how can I then seek uh, becoming better in that area? It can, like you said, it can destroy someone's ability to seek help mm -hmm. and thus create even more harm in someone's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Aside from the actual work with Black women clients, white allies, that their work is with other white people. That white people are going to be in um, circles, 
and their sphere of influence can be with white people, that's where we're needing the most advocacy. That's where we're needing allies to be the strongest. When we're not present, our voice isn't there, we're not at the table. Need that for you to be speaking up for us then. Needing for you to counter racism, needing for you to counter sexism, needing for you to create different narratives about who we are and um, what our experiences are. So again, this book is related to that too, because it does speak about the advocacy and social justice that's happening outside the therapy room and for therapists to be called to do the work. Our work is just not sitting one-on-one with clients and the APA, American Psychological Association, American Counseling Association, um, uh, National Social Workers, Marriage and Family Therapists, all of our ethics codes say that the work is done outside of the therapy room. So if we're, at, if we're in accordance with our ethical principles, we're doing the advocacy outside of therapy. So that's very important to, you cannot support me and then vote for legislation that hurts me. You cannot want to work to help protect me and then not have allow me to have access to my body. The work is done outside of therapy. And when our society is different, a lot of these problems that BIPOC people face, we won't have those problems anymore. They'll just go away. It's the racism, sexism. Those are the problems. So for one, that. And then in terms of work with clients within psychology, there's the multicultural counseling competencies. And that first competency is fit focus on self-awareness, that before you can understand somebody else, you have to understand yourself. So to look into your own white identity and what that means to you. And then we take that a step further. How do you benefit from Black oppression? How do you perpetuate Black oppression? What does anti-racism, anti-Blackness really look like? That deep self-reflection, acting those reflexive questions, because even people who are the most woke or the most open, we're not going to be immune to what centuries, um, what we've been learning about centuries about Black people. So doing that reflective work so we can counter our own biases. And then when we're confronted with those biases and practice, being open to that, recognizing that, and being able to grow. Ideally, we're creating environments for our clients where they can say these things to us, and we're not coming from a place of defense. We're coming from a place of understanding, need to clarify and wanting to grow. So the most important thing is doing that work within ourselves so that the white people can better, white mental health professionals can then better engage and connect with their clients. And then it's coming from a culturally humble place. That as much as we try to understand those who are different from us, there's always just gonna be a different reality, a different lived experience. So being curious and respecting those differences, knowing that we'll never fully be able to step in that person's shoes or empathize with them all the way. And that's not what people are looking for. You don't have to know everything about me, but uh, it is important that you respect and honor the stories and the experiences that I'm sharing with you. And then there are specific skills that have been identified to work better with Black women or to better connect to Black women's experiences. A lot of those things are in the book, but we think about culturally adaptive models so one of the most known therapy models is cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, which is focused on changing the way that we think so then we feel different and we're going to behave differently. But it's very individualized that if you think in a different way, you'll feel better. Um, so the, a lot of the responsibility is put on the person. 
However, again, a lot of the experiences that BIPOC people um, are having are not related to who they are or what they're doing. It's how the world is in relation to who they are and what they're doing. So for a Black woman who goes to work and she says, I think we should leave the meeting this way. And she's then identified as a aggressive. It's not her coming to therapy to work on her aggressiveness. It is how that experience of gender racism is impacting her. So then instead of just having a CBT approach with that Black woman where she needs to do something different, it's taking a culturally adaptive CBT approach where we are recognizing how oppression and colonization is impacting her to empower her to figure out what she wants to do in that process but by not putting that responsibility on, the, on her having to necessarily change who she is. That's amazing. That's a whole kind of shift in, uh, you know, you could put that frame on a variety of different uh, scenarios and that whole entire narrative shift. It's like liberating. It's, it's not mm-hmm. me. It's racism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so mm-hmm. that's I really like the way you describe that. And I also think about the narrative shift in terms of the summer of 2020 and beyond, you know, about white people being responsible for their own um, acknowledgement. I recently heard, uh, I went to an amazing conference called Embodying Social Justice, and they talked about, instead of speaking about um, asking, you know, your mother was involved in desegregation, or your father was involved in, we need to talk about, okay, so as a white person, what were your parents doing during this time? Mm -hmm. And having these conversations openly, so young people can acknowledge that there's you know, there are multiple vantage points. And if you just look at it from one viewpoint in the individual, individualized mm-hmm. spectrum, then you're missing everything you just described. Then it becomes mm-hmm. my fault or it becomes my problem. And therefore, you know, we're not looking at the systemic piece. So I think that's so important what you just uh, mm-hmm. mentioned. And also, whatever we're going to learn about, we need to take the initiative. The information is there. And it need not always be the kind of emotional work mm-hmm. of Black and Brown mm-hmm. and uh, Indigenous women to to bring forth these experiences. They're out there, and so that's why yeah. you know your work is so important and and valuable. Yeah, that we the emotional labor went into cr- constructing the book, and those resources they are definitely out there. There are so many resources on anti-blackness and anti-racism that are available, it's going ahead and utilizing that. But that's that personal responsibility and accountability in doing that work, while then also seeking out um, resources and BIPOC individuals, um, and then paying them for their services too is important. We're oftentimes expected to work for free. I love that part. Uh, I think that that too, again, for, for me personally, I feel like that narrative is very recent. <laughs> <laughs> just like if you do public service or you if you do work in you know uh, that in some way is service oriented that or you know doing anti-racism work that it's just you know out of the goodness of our hearts but it's actually very difficult work and very taxing on us in various ways um in terms of some very specific uh maybe if you'd like to share two examples of specific um, practices or exercises that just to bring forth to light, because what I hope is everyone who listens to the podcast episode will go out and buy your book. Um, But if you can just share some of the exercises or um, practical 
applications that we can think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing that you touched on earlier, again, is just being able to simply name what's happening. So in therapy, when Black women are talking about their experiences, being able to say, that sounds like racism. That sounds like sexism. So empowering people to use that language that is actually representative of their experiences is so important. And again, repeating what you're saying is liberation, liberating. It's an act of liberation to acknowledge what's happening. And when um, particularly Black women are coming in and sharing their stories and sharing their traumas, how important it is to, again, shift that narrative to labeling what's happening. Um, And then with Black women who are wanting to recognize their strength and their resiliency, but we also need to recognize the need for care. So as an example, I think about my own mother who went um, into therapy, had trauma in her background, was having relationship challenges, children, working, um, health issues, and going into therapy for that. And literally my mother's story, if she when she's talking, like it's just so engrossing. It pulls people in. They're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe, I cannot believe this. Well, this is this is what was happening in the South when she was growing up. Like, but just at like the level of poverty that she grew up in, it's hard for people to understand what that's like and then what how that experience is impact. So like literally people are just like, oh my goodness, like this is an amazing story. And then she went into therapy and her therapist was like, wow. So amazing everything that you've done. Look where you are, you know, your professional degrees and your children under it. Like, wow, look how look how strong you are. You're doing the best you can given what you've experienced. And my mother said, for a little while, she's like, okay, I feel that makes me feel good that I'm doing the best that I can. But as we're talking, then she realizes, but I never got help for the things that I needed. My relationships didn't change. That stress that I was experiencing was still there. Those traumas were never dealt with. So that practical thing of being able to honor and appreciate Black women's strength and resiliency and perform that culturally competent care, to be able to balance that out. Because yes, we are strong and we are resilient and we are unicorns and we are super, we're all of those things. And we have vulnerability, vulnerabilities, we have weaknesses, we have needs that need to be serviced. So again, that shift of being able to see fully the experiences of Black women, those sort of realities, honoring them, and then also building those skills and doing that work is important. And one of those things is being able to label what's happening, to validate and give voice to what's actually going on. Um, it's one example of practical things that um, therapists can do and working with Black women. And then we just want Black women to feel safe being able to come in. So just like a super practical thing is when Black women are looking for therapists, let us know that we can feel safe with you by the language that's on your website, by where you are locating yourself. There's directory directory specifically for BIPOC individuals, Black women, um, being on those directories, being able to utilize that language of Um, being a affirming and a culturally centered therapist so that Black women know that they would feel invited in those spaces. That's wonderful. Thank you. You know, Mm -hmm. as you were speaking about the stereotypes about Black women, you know, they have consequences, those stereotypes, you know, in real life implications. So incredibly important. So thank you for sharing that. And we'll definitely be putting some resources in the show notes 
um, so that anyone who's looking, you know, I've been on your website and you have incredible um, resources, obviously the book as well. Just a couple more questions. Um, at the end of last year, the American Psychological Association issued its first apology to people of color. The APA said it recognized that it had perpetuated racism. And so I'm just curious your thoughts about that. How did that land? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it landed mixed with BIPOC individuals. So it, I, I do think it was important for APA to put that out there, how they participated in systemic racism and oppression of BIPOC individuals. And then we saw that, and we still see that, that primarily the research is being done on white populations and then generalized to Black groups. We see still disparities in access to psychological and counseling education, and that the work that was being produced, again, the mental health field has harmed Black people, and that's been through pathologizing us and coming into our communities to tell us how deficient we are and not um, bringing in resources or using that community-based care where we're encouraging people to, we're giving people the tools and resources to take care of themselves. So mix that it needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be recognized and that unfortunately, mental health professionals, they carry biases too. They carry racism, they carry sexism, they carry heterosexism, um, ableism. I know I'm on some different online forums and the things that come out of these therapists' mouths, I'm just like, this, how, what is happening here? So I think the larger psychological and counseling organizations, they need to acknowledge that and they need to make a stance on anti-racism and anti-Blackness and then have expectations for those who are within the field to align their values to what ethically we're supposed to be doing. So on one side, it's not enough. It's not enough. And it does not fully account for the damage and the devastation that's happened, happened but it had to be acknowledged. It needed to be put out there for change to um, be more intentional. Thank you. I love what you said about um, just in terms of the accountability and just high level accountability. How can we ensure that we are creating safe spaces and that they are doing more good than harm? So thank you for that. You know, I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who's listening to the podcast and they may have been in therapy before, they may have never thought of therapy before, they may even not think to themselves, well, I have some healing or I could use some help getting through um, some issues or challenges I'm facing. What would you say to someone who may just have kind of a little spark of interest in the world of um, getting some help or therapy, seeking therapy? Mm -hmm. Therapy is for everyone and for everything that when we're experiencing a major crisis or we're at a um, major turn in our journeys, therapy is an excellent resource. But therapy, kind of like we go to the doctor once a year for a checkup, we can do the same thing with our mental health, that we don't have to be in crisis or there to be something significantly wrong for us to seek out therapy. If we're just curious about ourselves or personal growth, that's an excellent reason to come into therapy. And then also the earlier that we're identifying and we're working on issues or problems, we can resolve them before they do become a chronic stressor to us. So if there's even a, hmm, I'm curious about therapy, that that's an excellent time to look into therapy, that we don't have to be in crisis. And um, clients, they often ask me like, do you think I'm crazy? 
You seem like an everyday person who's having everyday issues. You're not crazy. We don't have to be crazy to come into therapy. We can be people who want to live and thrive in our lives. And therapy can be a helpful resource and tool for doing that. Um, Therapy is great for our relationships. We want to be in strong, healthy relationships. So utilizing therapy to do the work within ourselves so that we're prepared for those relationships or coming in therapy so we can make those changes with our partner or partners around our, our relationships or our families. Just thinking about where do I want to go in life and that therapy more than likely is going to be a resource in getting to that location. That's wonderful. As somebody who loves therapy, <laughs> I absolutely love therapy. Something I really look forward to. Therapy is actually fun. Like it can be fun. Like my clients and I, we are like laughing and we're just enjoying our time together. And then we get to re- rejoice in their growth and their healing. This therapy is not all what's wrong with you, what's going on with you, how um, terrible or doom and gloom. No, therapy, it feels good being a therapist, especially when you feel connected to your therapist. Absolutely. And I think to me, that was kind of a key that unlocked um, is having the right therapist and culturally competent and just kind of understanding my vantage point, my background, et cetera. And I just love the way you just summed up everything. I'm really excited because uh, with Roots of the Spirit, my organization, we just launched the inaugural Healing and Joy Retreat for Black, Indigenous, and women of color. And so it's, you know, everything, the way I think I'm putting all the pieces of our conversation puzzle together in terms of looking at our resilience and power and wisdom that we have. Yes, we have experience and traditionally or kind of intergenerational trauma and enslavement and colonialism or colonization, but we have that within us and bringing those gifts and that forth and also talking about resources and tools. So it's the healing, the joy, and also Mm -hmm. the resources, like this being a continuum. So I really Mm -hmm. thank you uh, for your time. I have one last question. And then I would love for you after you respond to this question is tell everyone where they can buy the book and where we can find you on social media. So what is missing from the conversation? What did I not ask? Or what do you find is missing from the conversation that you're having kind of in the grand field of the work that you do? Hmm. That's tough. Because like we were saying earlier, that inf- all this information is out there and it's accessible. It is to utilize that information. So what's missing from that conversation would be um, maybe greater accountability of people doing the work that they need to do. So that again, communities of color, we're not having to do that work. When racism and sexism is addressed, we'll see many issues that Black women are facing will dissolve. And I know for a lot of Black women, they would just love to come into therapy and talk about, my kid's doing this, or I feel depressed around these things, and not have to be layered with microaggressions, and not have to be layered with racial trauma. So to do the work outside of therapy, so Black people, so we can just live, we just want to live, do that work so we can just live our lives. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Please tell and share where we can catch up with you outside of the podcast episode, because I know many people will be excited to connect. Mm-hmm. I would love to connect. I am on Facebook at KLS Counseling, and you can also connect to the handbook on Facebook as well, on Facebook and Instagram at Counseling Black Women. 
The book is available at all major book realtors um, on Amazon. You can purchase the book there or directly from the publisher. And based on the book and with the editors, co-editors, and several of the authors in this book, this summer we're doing a worthiness, womanness, blackness conference for black women, um, for mental health professionals working with black women. So it's a virtual two-day conference that's going to be based in empowering, healing, training, so that, again, this is another um, way of building that competence with mental health professionals working with Black women. So it'll be focused on cultural competence. It's going to be focused on a paradigm shift away from the strong Black woman schema that um, can oftentimes create issues with receiving care and getting that care that we need. It's going to be focused on liberation and therapy with um, Black um, queer and trans women, and there's going to be a healing event specifically for, so the, the conference is for everyone, but then there's one event specifically for Black women therapists who, again, are living in these multiple realities. So a healing around the work that we do. One of the presenters that, and also an author of the book, is Dr. Candace Hargens, who created the Black Lives matter meditation for healing racial trauma and she also created an adjunct um, meditation for white allies so she's going to be leading that along with leah frazier who is a certified meditation expert and it's going to lead black women through a sound bath so we have something for everyone um, and that's going to be in july and that can be found by following us on facebook or instagram at counseling black women that sounds extraordinary Thank you so much for sharing. This is absolutely beautiful. Thank you for all the work that you do and for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. As always, we'd appreciate if you head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Recommend this podcast to family and friends. Follow up with us on social media at Roots of the Spirit on all platforms. Visit our website and join our email list at rootsofthespirit.com. Also, you'll find links to the resources discussed in the episode in our show notes. Roots of the Spirit is hosted and directed by me, Spirit Tafik. Production assistance is provided by Karen Stewart of Power of Pod. Until next time. <laughs>